Well, speaking of growing up, as I was talking about with the children, uh, there are certain turning points in our lives that mark a significant change. For example, getting your first job. For some of you, you may have been very young right, when you got your first job. Uh, for some of you, maybe you're a little bit older. Maybe you needed a car first before you got your first job. But getting your first job, getting your first car, your first time living away from home, getting married, having your first kid, your first grandkid, retirement. Each of those turning points brings something new into your life and something becomes true of you that was not true before. You can say, I have a job. I'm living on my own. I'm married. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm retired. I'm a parent. I'm a grandparent. Those are all significant moments and significant changes. And the feeling that we get when we think about those changes in our own lives or those changes in the lives of our, our children and our grandchildren, I want you to carry that, that feeling, that sense of significance with you into the Gospel of John this morning because we are going to witness a significant change in the life of Jesus. We're going to be looking at John 12 this morning. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. John 12, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 12. But what we're going to, to see, among other things, in this story is a turning point for Jesus. Because from the beginning of the Gospel of John, we've been told something like this. In John chapter 2, when Jesus went to the wedding at Cana, Remember when they ran out of wine at the wedding and Jesus' mother Mary came to him and said, hey, they're out of wine. Clearly indicating Jesus should do something about that. Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. And then later in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, John tells us that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because... His hour had not yet come. And then again in chapter 8, John says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But now in John 12, Jesus himself will say, The hour has come. There's a significant turning point in Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry here in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'll read for us verse 12 through verse 26. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, this took place just after Jesus had come to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and some people wanted to kill Jesus because of the things that he was doing. So Jesus had gone away for a time, but then he came back to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, and uh, they, they threw a dinner for him there. And that was six days before the Passover, John told us. And now in verse 12, he says, it's the next day, which means we're now five days away from the Passover. And because we know that Jesus was crucified at Passover time, the last meal he had with his disciples was the Passover, we know that Jesus' death is drawing very near. Though we're only about halfway through the Gospel of John, we are already into the last week of the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. So it's the next day, and there's a large crowd of people, John tells us, um, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they got word somehow that Jesus was going to go from Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house, apparently, to Jerusalem, which was just kind of across the valley there. And so verse 13 says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, this is a, a passage and a story that we normally uh, read and think about on Palm Sunday, right? We have a, a, a day, a Sunday in the church calendar where we mark this particular event. So it's fairly familiar to us. Right, but it's worth thinking again about what exactly is happening here. When they took these palm branches and go out to meet Jesus, it says they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is from Psalm 118, which we read earlier. And then they say, even the king of Israel. So as they are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, which of course is the capital city of Israel, not just the capital politically, so to speak, but also the capital religiously. This is where the temple is. This is where worship is centered for the people. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and the crowd of people that have gathered for the Passover 
are celebrating the arrival of Jesus and hailing Him as their King. Uh, Think about the significance of this moment and this declaration. Because Israel does not rule itself at this time. In one sense, Israel doesn't have a king in the traditional sense. Now, they have some people who've been put in place or allowed to be in place by Rome, but Rome really is in charge of Israel at this time. And any claim that somebody with the size following that Jesus had might be the king of Israel is the kind of declaration that could set off a powder keg. This is what some of the religious leaders were so concerned about back in chapter 11. Remember when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they said, if people keep believing in him, he keeps doing these signs and people keep believing in him, then Rome is going to come take away our nation and our place. We're We're going to be in trouble. But Jesus didn't come to be the kind of king that would set off that kind of rebellion. But he did come as a king. Just not that kind of king. They weren't wrong to hail him as king, of course, but they probably didn't understand what it meant for him to be king. Remember when Jesus uh, is before Pilate, and Pilate's going to ask Jesus about his kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't have a throne in Jerusalem that I'm going to sit on. I don't have an army that I have raised up against you. I'm not interested in going to war with you. If, If I was, then my disciples would have been fighting for me. But the one disciple that drew a sword in Jesus' defense, Jesus told him to put it away. That's not the kind of kingdom Jesus has. That's not the kind of king Jesus is. Instead, verse 14 says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus intentionally entered Jerusalem signaling to the people that He is their King. That was on purpose. Jesus knows this prophecy from Zechariah, as the people do as well. And Zechariah told the people that their King would come sitting on a donkey or a donkey's colt. And Jesus deliberately chooses to enter Jerusalem on a young donkey. Effectively, proclaiming himself king and the one who fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. All of that was on purpose. But there's more to what Jesus is doing here than what we notice from just a little bit of the prophecy that John quotes for us. There's more to what Zechariah said that explains what Jesus is doing. Zechariah said, Not only rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, he said. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble 
and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is significant that Jesus comes into Jerusalem not on a white horse with a military uniform or a cape and a crown. It's significant that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because He comes as King, He comes to save, but He comes in humility. He comes as a humble king. He does not come to seize power or take a position of prominence as king. He comes to lay down his life as king. He comes to save his people by sacrificing himself for them. He's a humble king. And the humility of Jesus is not just for Jesus. It is also for us to imitate. Remember, some of Jesus' disciples were concerned not so much with imitating Jesus, but with having their own power, their own position, their own prominence. They wanted to be seated at Jesus' right and left hand when He entered His kingdom, when He became the King. And Jesus' response to them was to say this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why He's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem to lay down his life in humility and love for us. And he expects his disciples to imitate him in this. Not that we could lay down our lives to save other people, but we can lay down our lives figuratively at least. And some people do literally lay down their lives in service to others, in love to others. That's the example that Jesus set for us and expects us to follow. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. He says to the church at Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what we can confidently say based on Jesus' example, Jesus' teaching, Paul's teaching. If we are more concerned about our prominence, our position, or our power, then we are about imitating the humility and servant heartedness of Christ, then we have left 
the path of following Jesus. If we are more concerned about power or prestige than we are about character, then we have ceased to listen to Jesus and we have begun to listen to the world. Because Jesus makes quite clear that what is important, what makes somebody great, is that they serve, is that they love. Paul says, if we're paying attention to what Jesus did, if we're imitating his example, then we're going to count others more significant than ourselves. We're going to put others ahead of ourselves. That's what Jesus was doing, even as he rode into Jerusalem with uh, people hailing him as king. He was trotting that path in order to sacrifice himself so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be saved, so that we might have life through his death. Now, John tells us that uh, the disciples didn't fully understand what was happening to Jesus, even as this was unfolding. In verse 16, he says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John, of course, is one of the disciples himself. So it's as though John is saying, as this happened, we didn't fully understand what was going on. We weren't putting all the pieces together in real time. It wasn't until after the fact, it wasn't until Jesus was glorified, meaning that he had died and then risen from the dead. It wasn't until after that that we went back mentally to what had happened and understood the significance of Jesus being hailed as king, Jesus riding in on a donkey, Jesus entering Jerusalem in this way. We didn't fully understand it until later. But now that we've put it together, I'm passing it on to you so that we will understand what Jesus was doing and why he was doing it. John also tells us in verse 17 that the crowd of people that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So as Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem and whatever else is happening around this event, there are these people who were with Jesus when he raised Lazarus and they just haven't stopped talking about it. As would be the case for you and I too. I mean, they were there and saw the tomb. It was closed. Lazarus had been in it for four days. Everybody knew that. And all these people who had gathered around witnessed Jesus giving instructions for the tomb to be open, calling Lazarus by name, and Lazarus walked out alive. And the people who saw that, they're they're telling the people who weren't there. They're bearing witness about what has happened. And then in verse 18 it says, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The reason all these people are are coming to see Jesus as he enters Jerusalem is because of what they heard he did with Lazarus. He accomplished such a dramatic sign, such an unexpected event. He displayed such power 
that people want to see him. They want to be around him. They are wondering about who he could be. Some of them perhaps already believing that he is the Messiah. And the Pharisees who have set themselves in opposition to Jesus, they watch this unfold with dismay. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They had already decided, after Caiaphas' instruction back in chapter 11, that Jesus needed to die. That was their plan. They needed to kill Jesus to prevent him from gathering more followers and ultimately bringing trouble down upon them from Rome. That's what they feared, and so that's what they decided had to be done. Not only that, they decided they needed to kill Lazarus, too, because so many people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus, they were going to take Lazarus' life. And they had already told people, back again, back in chapter 11, they told people, if you see Jesus... Come tell us so that we can go arrest him. But here comes Jesus. Not hiding from anybody. Being humble doesn't mean you have to hide. Not hiding from anybody. Riding publicly into Jerusalem. Being hailed as king while people are seeking his life and seeking to destroy him. And those who want to destroy him look on and they say, we're getting nowhere. This is not getting any better. And they say, the world has gone after him. And here again, they don't realize how true what they are saying really is. Because the next thing that happens in verse 20 is John says, Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And John says, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So in this crowd of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, it is not just Jews who have come to believe in Jesus or who are curious about Jesus. There are even some Greeks among them, and they want to meet Jesus. They want to see Jesus. Jesus. So indeed, the whole world is going after Jesus. The whole world is being drawn to Jesus. And this is the beginning, or part of the beginning, of the fulfillment of another prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's where the temple is, The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jesus has already told us back in John chapter 2 that he is the fulfillment of the temple. Right? He said, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and I'll raise it up in three days. So as Isaiah prophesies about the nations flowing to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, that is being fulfilled in part as the Greeks flow to Jesus, the true temple, in Jerusalem just before his Crucifixion, And of course, after that, Jesus will send out his disciples 
to bring more disciples from all the nations to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus. So Philip and uh, Andrew uh, go and tell Jesus about these men who are seeking to to see him, to follow him, and they uh, begin introducing the world to Jesus. On a small scale, what they will be doing later when Jesus sends them out into all the world, into all the nations. This is just the beginning of why Jesus came. Uh, Jesus has told us already, he didn't come just for the Jews, he came also for the Gentiles, he came for the whole world. God so loved the world, right, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is going to the cross to lay down His life, and He's going to say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to Myself. Not just Jews, but also Greeks and Romans and people from China and South America and North America and all over the world, Jesus will draw people to trust in Him because He came into the darkness to bring us light. He came for sinners to grant us forgiveness and life and salvation with God. And if we turn from our sin and we trust in Him, then we have Him as our Savior. We have that salvation He brought with Him into Jerusalem, that salvation He purchased for us on the cross, that salvation that was secured for us through His resurrection. That's why He came. And it's at this moment that Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As someone has said uh, that it's as though the Greeks coming to seek Jesus was some kind of signal for him to, to indicate that this was the end. I think that might be overstating it a little bit, but I don't think it's insignificant. I don't think it's coincidental that as these Greeks come to meet Jesus, that Jesus says, now is the time. Now is the hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is he glorified? What is about to happen? He's going to be glorified through His death on the cross. Because as He dies, He is going to show the depths of His love. The extent of His humility. The extent of His obedience to His Father. He is going to show the greatness, the glory of His love for humanity as the Son of God dying in our place. And He's going to be glorified through His resurrection as we see His power and sovereignty and divinity as He, like He said back in chapter 10, has authority to lay down His life and has authority to take it back up again. Jesus is going to show in a dramatic way who He is so that we can see most clearly through these two events, through His death and resurrection, that Jesus is no mere man, no mere teacher, no mere miracle worker. He is God in the flesh. God become man. He is the one Messiah, the one Savior. God come to dwell among His people to save His people. Now is the hour. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Why does this have to happen? Verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. One piece of grain is one piece of grain if you keep it. But if you put it in the ground, then what happens? It becomes much more. It bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, it's necessary for me to die. The reason why I'm going to die is because from my death will come much fruit. Many people will turn to the Lord. Many people will have their sins forgiven. Many people will receive eternal life, life and fellowship with God. Many people will be made new if I lay down my life. But again, it's not just for Jesus to lay down His life. He does so uniquely. He's the only one who can lay down His life to save But again, he calls us to follow his example. Verse 25, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to hate living. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Do you hate the idea of living apart from Christ? Living apart from God? That's what he's talking about. If you love your life in this world apart from God, you will end up losing your life because true life is found in God and if you reject Him, you will be without Him. But if you recognize this life is nothing without the God who gave me life, I need Him in my life. I need to entrust to Him my life. If I hate my life in this world, meaning my life cut off from Him, and I want to be with Him, that if I desire that, then I will keep my life for eternal life, because I'll be in fellowship with God, who is life. And knowing Him, Jesus says, is eternal life. And then He says, finally, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Again, the example He said is not optional for people who want to serve and honor and trust Jesus. We have to follow Him. And where I am, He says, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor Him. So if we serve Jesus, we have to follow Jesus. If we serve Jesus, we'll be honored by the Father. And following Him is not about just merely observing Him from a distance, kind of keeping tabs on what He does, being interested in what He says. It means imitating His example. It means doing as He does. And though we may not physically lay down our lives as He did, following Him does require us to die in some way. To die to ourselves. To die to our old way of living. So that we can live with Him. And that, dying to yourself and following Jesus, is the greatest turning point of any life. Let's pray.